The Apostle Paul uh, is a serious, serious force <laughs> to be reckoned with in the book of Acts. T.R. Glover commenting about the Apostle Paul and his effectiveness in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. He said, thinking about that time, he said, you know, the day was to come in their history. The day was to come when men would call their dogs Nero and their sons Paul. And uh, he's right. You want to name uh, your sons, not after the leader of the world, but after the instrument God uses to save your life. And so, you know, last week you actually had a Paul preach to you. And so it kind of works out, uh, some evidence, I guess, for the comment that I'm making. Uh, Paul Olszewski, I'm thankful that brother came to teach. What an example of faithfulness we get to encounter today together in this passage that you just heard read by our brother. As we do, I want us to have hope together that in the way the moon reflects the sun, to us, you know, we hopefully may shine the light of Christ as Paul did. Our outline today will follow our sermon title that you see printed in your bulletin, Preaching, Planting, and Praying. Preach, we're going to look at Paul's confidence. Plant, we're going to consider Paul's endurance. And pray, we're going to look at Paul's hope. Preach, plant, and pray. Let's do some context first for verses 19 and 20. What in the world is going on at the start of this passage? If you were a guest here today and you didn't come last week, um, when you see things like riots, violence, and executions, that's not the usual for most people in their life. But when you're rolling with Paul and Barnabas, however, it is per the usual. As Blake likes to say, it's a usual thing for Paul and Barnabas to have angry Jews after them. And the context for verse 19 is that those angry Jewish leaders that were hanging out in Antioch, Pisidian, and Iconium have made the trek some 40 to 50 miles to find Paul and Barnabas in Lystra. And last week's sermon title was just too good. I know I didn't preach it, but I just had to tell you, the, the sermon title was Myth-Placed Worship. And if you think of last week, that's perfect, right? Misplaced worship? No, myth-placed worship. Because Paul and Barnabas have been in Lystra. They've had in Lystra a, a group that is listening to them. Paul's healed a man. And they think that, that Zeus and Hermes, the gods, have, their false gods, have come down into the form of Paul and Barnabas. Myth-placed worship. Isn't that clever? Um, but you know, such people that would worship, want to worship Paul and them, the, the, tech, the verse before our text today said that they barely stopped them from even, even, even offering uh, you know, false like blood sacrifices for Paul and them. They barely stopped them. But how fickle are these people? Because the moment that these angry Jews show up, they're able to convince these Greeks, which is a little bit of prodding, to do something really terrible. And verse 19 picks up that scene, as you heard read. Paul's dead, it seems. Can you envision being outside the city with an angry mob? There's the mob walking away back to the city. Here over to the side are the disciples that weren't throwing stones but were seriously scared. And Paul's limp body laying there. Skin broken open, bleeding in multiple places, knocked out unconscious. 
Notice that the disciples he has made are those who gather about him, which is really encouraging. Everyone thought he was dead. He's merely unconscious. That's why Luke wants to include they supposed that he was dead in verse 19. Getting off that ground is one thing. I mean, could you imagine just getting up alone after something like that is one thing. But look what Paul did. I mean, the context is, is he went back into the city. I'm sure he did it secretly to reconnect probably with the rest of the disciples that were there and including his main partner, Barnabas. For some reason, they didn't you know, stone Barnabas. And then what do they do? You know what the context of this passage is? They walk to Derby the next day. That's a 40-mile trek. So now you understand right here at the introduction, that's the context. I mean, if you need a portrait of who Paul is, consider a man who, for the sake of the gospel, has his own skin broken open, his flesh bleeding, his head hit so hard and concussed that he's passed out, getting up, and the next day going to a city 40 miles away so that he can preach Jesus there. You want to be like him? I do. Paul's inspiring. And so that's the context. Today's text then turns into our sermon of a summary passage, a summary passage that closes the end of the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. Let's learn from Paul's example together in these verses. First, let's consider Paul as a preacher. You know, preaching, preaching is really Paul's confidence. That's the first point here, preach. I want you to see the importance Paul places on preaching. He places it, it seems, in three places. Paul wants to preach to himself, the lost, and to fellow saints. And my encouragement to you as you hear each of these is you need to think about, are you preaching to yourself? Are you preaching to the lost? And are you preaching to your fellow saints this morning? Paul isn't recorded preaching to himself in this passage but he is stoned in this passage. And there's another passage that he references uh, this moment later in his life. Paul writes to the church in Corinth. In the second letter that he writes to them in chapter 11, he wrote this. Three times he writes to them, I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Paul, reflecting later on, on this moment, writes and says that he was stoned. He lists other hardships after that. And then he says this, if I must boast, I will boast, I will preach, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. Now in that letter, why is Paul using that language? What is that language about? Why not just say God? Why not just say, if I must boast, I'll boast in God. Why all the language of the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying? He could have just said, God knows I'm not lying. Paul, reflecting on his perils in Corinthians, shows us that more than likely, Paul was preaching the gospel to himself after this stoning. I mean, could you imagine how dejected and discouraged you must feel? How physically hurt you must feel? what it looks like to be so low as to be left for dead outside of a city. And yet, Paul, reflecting on all of his persecutions later, lets us know it's not just that God is the one who's not lying. It's God who he says is the father of the Lord Jesus. He, God, who is to be blessed forever. Paul always talks like that. 
Every time he talks about God, if you'll read him, you'll notice it's never just God. It's God the Father who loves and has sent his love. It's be blessed in God who has for dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's always preaching the glory of God, even to himself. It, out, it flows out of him. The point isn't about the reader. It is about showing that one uh, that one thing helped, uh, helped, excuse me, strengthened Paul as he strengthened others. And it's the gospel message. Now, what is the gospel message? God loves us. We have sinned. You and I have broken God's commands and deserve hell and God's wrath for eternity. We know that death now. Christ is God's answer. He sent Jesus, fully God and fully man, to die and pay the penalty for our sins and rise from the grave, and we respond by placing faith in him. This gospel, Paul believed, and you best believe he believed it himself. J.I. Packer once wrote, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for on this earth is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Paul knew that. He taught that. He also reminded himself of that. I have no doubt that Paul was preaching to an audience of one in all of his efforts in this first missionary journey. That one was God himself. Paul envisioned the day when he would stand before God and have confidence in Jesus Christ. And that's what motivated him. Secondly, Paul preached to the lost. It may seem obvious that Paul preaches to the lost, but really see this one is in our text. Look at verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city, that's Derby. Verse 25, when they had spoken the word in Perga, Paul's obsession is to share the good news of the gospel with anyone who will listen. Now, why is that? Well, something else he wrote later to the Romans. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You want to know why Paul preaches the gospel? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And as it is written, the righteous, they shall live by faith. Paul preached to himself. Paul preached to the lost. And finally, he preached to fellow saints. Now, we really need a map to understand and to point us to, you know, something super important that Paul and Barnabas are doing. This passage you heard read, if you can, you can see it still, look in verse 21. I know it's not a map, but you can see where it says, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. That's Antioch and Pisidia. Do you see that? They returned. Paul is backtracking into some of the cities where they have already preached and planted churches. And they're traveling back that way to check on and encourage the congregations that are there. And what does he do when he's there? Any guesses? Yeah, he preaches. I don't do that a lot, make you answer me, but you know, every once in a while I want to do it. He preaches. Look at verse 22. Paul, strengthening, encouraging, and saying. You see that? He spoke to these various churches the ministry of the word of God. Look at verse 27. Paul and Barnabas have finished. They're back where they started. And what do they do? It says that they, and later on, gathered the church together. They declared. 
They preached. They declared all that God had done with them. So even to the saints, Paul preached. Let me do some application before we move on from this point. Transparent story here. I would be ashamed to say this to you, but for the grace of God, I'm not. And because of God's grace, I'm not ashamed. I'm just convicted. But on Thursday, when I was driving to Shreveport with my wife to take our daughter to, uh, to her doctor's appointment, I was bad-mouthing myself. I was so discouraged in my own walk with the Lord that I was having a serious hatred for the lost people in my life. And I dare say I also had a lot of negative thoughts about RBC, this very church. Quite literally found myself not preaching to myself the hope of the gospel, but believing the lies that want to steal the hope of the gospel. Not hoping that God would save to the uttermost those that I share the gospel with, but believing the lie that they'll never be saved. At least not through my efforts. And to my shame, thinking that maybe, maybe our church isn't even fit. How often do our lives get marked by the exact opposite of what we should know, what we should preach, and what we should do? I'm standing here today in full transparency to you because I want to be honest with you. And I also want you to be honest with yourself. And I want to ask each one of you, how are you doing in this area? Are you preaching to yourself? Paul David Tripp says, every day you preach to yourself a gospel of your loneliness, inability, and lack of resources. Or you faithfully preach to yourself the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's always one or the other. Which gospel are you preaching? A false one? Where your anxieties and your worries and your shortcomings and your inabilities are making everything make sense? Or are you preaching the true gospel where your insecurities and your anxieties and your shortcomings don't matter in regards to your eternal hope and therefore there is an answer for them in repentance again and believing the hope of the gospel? I'm thankful that my Thursday night gave way to Friday, to Saturday, and, and even to right now to sing about the hope we have and to preach about it to you. Brother and sister, are you preaching to yourself? What about the lost? You preaching to the lost? Charles Spurgeon once said simply to his congregation concerning this, uh, their lack of love that they had for the lost, he said very simply, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. That's a heavy hammer. Which is it for you? Ask yourself this morning, when is the last time you shared the gospel with someone who doesn't believe it? Are you preaching to your fellow saints, RBC? You may say, how can I? You may say, I I'm no preacher. I have no gifts. I cannot think of myself in the role of a minister. You know, I want to leave that to the more qualified. Let me tell you, that is a load of stink. It just is. Let me ask you a question. Can you serve someone in the body? Yes. Russell Moore once wrote, in the New Testament, we don't find our gift through self-examination and introspection and then find ways to express it. He says, instead, we love one another, we serve one another, we help one another, and in so doing, we see how God has equipped us to do so. 
That's what our church covenant teaches. That's why we can be a people that consider each other's needs above our own. And we seek to show hospitality to the saints. That's where you find how you can serve, how you can help, how you can pray. Are you preaching to fellow saints? If we do more together, we will see this in action. I'll give you an example of this happening. I mean, the Hughes Household Fellowship has been open now for a few weeks. And I just want to give glory to God for the fact that, that every time I've been over there, it seems as though my, my Sunday afternoon has been picked up personally. I, and maybe it's just me, but I mean, I pour out a lot on Sunday mornings and I feel very empty. But to just be there and have conversations with whoever shows up to talk about what's going on and to just see children laughing or you know, sharing a meal together, it does something in my heart. Find these opportunities because that's what Paul and them did. When it says they strengthened, encouraged, and said to one another, they gathered at the church and they declared to one another. You must know this happened in the services, but it also was happening house to house. I find the same type of hope when I have fellowship over a coffee with someone or at elder care meetings. The, the, the joy of getting to spend time together really can preach itself into our lives. Do we believe it? I think we do. If that doesn't help you grow, then take this last encouragement from another quote. C.S. Lewis says, the next best thing to being wise oneself is to live in a circle of those who are. That's one thing why we need to preach the gospel to each other as fellow saints. Oftentimes, you don't have wisdom. You lack it, and you need to hear it from your brothers and sisters. We need each other. Amen? And Paul's confidence started and ending in preaching. He preached to himself. He preached to the lost. He preached to the fellow saints. Secondly, we see he planted. So if the first tells us about his confidence, this is now Paul's endurance. If preaching was the lifeblood uh, and the heart of Paul's ministry example, then, you know, in this first missionary journey that we're trying to look at in summary, then I think his endurance in church planning, it, it's like the hard skin, okay, that kept all that blood inside of him. Paul was a man of endurance, a man of faith, and that is evidence in what he uh, leaves behind in the wake of his apostolic church planting. Uh, he leaves behind two things for this, for this point in, in, in planting. He leaves behind disciples, and he leaves behind churches. Pretty simple. But let's see it. Look at verse 21 again. It says, when they had preached the gospel to that city, and okay, we got that, right? They preached the gospel. So first they preached the gospel. And it says, had made many disciples. Now, pause. Check that last part. I want you to underline that last part. It is essential. It is essential. What has been happening in all these cities where these amazing things have been happening for, for now 14 chapters in the book of Acts? I have an answer for you. Discipleship. Now, if you're reading straight through the New Testament, you haven't seen this word since Matthew 28, verse 19, where Jesus commanded his followers to do it. You haven't seen it yet, but now you do. What is discipleship? Well, listen, there are many definitions that abound, but let's just stick to our text for the answer. Look at verse 22. I showed you where he was preaching. Now let's see what he was talking about. It shows exactly what discipleship could, should consist of. Will you read 22 with me again? Here's what your discipleship should exist of. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, 
encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is a perfect summary of discipleship goals here. Now think about this. New believers are like babies. We just heard one, so perfect, perfect. They're like babies, right? And they're weak. They're weak in their soul. They're unable to feed themselves. They, they, they struggle to clothe themselves. They're barely walking in the truth. And discipleship, according to this verse, is a few things for the baby. It's strengthening their soul, strengthening it. I want you to think of the way that, that, that mortar fills in the gaps between bricks. That's what's in view here, okay? So think about if you laid a bunch of bricks on, and built a wall out of it. They'd be heavy, like truth, right? And they'd be building up something of circumstance. But if you don't have the mortar that can kind of bring it all together, you're not going to have a wall. You're going to have a weapon. Eventually, that unstableness of truths stacked up without making much sense of them, it could fall on you and topple you. And that's what it means to strengthen the soul of a believer. Discipleship is like the mortar that comes in, used by God, to really connect all those things in a really smooth fashion. It puts together all the big, big, heavy, beautiful truths of God in an understandable way. And it works from the ground up. And so discipleship is, is there's a, process, a part of it that, that is necessarily kind of smoothing out for you those truths that maybe you would hurt yourself with. Okay. It's also encouraging. You see that? Encouraging believers when they want to give up. This is an, uh, an essence issue. The discipleship must have encouragement in it. If you cannot encourage those that you disciple, you need to stop making disciples. So you got to fight for this. The way a coach or a player can inspire a team at halftime when they're maybe like losing. That's kind of what a modern day understanding, I think, of you know, encouraging that they won't give up. Now, if you've seen Friday Night Lights, you, you, it's with, uh, with Billy Bob Thornton. There's this famous scene in a typical halftime. They're losing, and you know, things are looking bad, and they may not make the playoffs. And, but there's this one character named Preacher Man. He's quiet, like the whole movie. He's just like a, just a, a stud of a football player, but he doesn't say anything, like the whole movie. You just see him working, working, working. And then when he sees that his team is discouraged, there's this powerful scene, I'll give you chills, where the Preacher Man stands up. And he is finally having his dialogue. And I, I won't do it justice because I can't, I can't do it. But I'm telling you, when he is telling them, they eat like we do. They sleep like we do. They do exactly what we do. Basically, he just brings the enemy down. And he takes them and he says, we know what to do. And he brings them back up. And the whole team rallies and they win the game. That's what's in view here in regards to encouraging those who want to give up. And your discipleship... Paul discipled in such a way that he realized they will see their enemies and think, oh, woe is us, we'll never be able to do this. And Paul says, encourage, be encouraged, saints, continue, do not give up, continue in the faith. Finally, another main core of discipleship, saying to one another that trials will come. Now think about how crazy practical that is. Telling someone your life is going to be very difficult. Expect difficulty. Expect trials. Or imagine that they already are probably in trials as he goes back. I mean, he was chased out of these cities for the sake of the gospel. He leaves. They don't. And now they're supposed to face legitimate persecution in the moment. You see the difficulty here? And yet he tells them what? He says, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 
There is something comforting about hearing in another person your own plight. I mean, they know that they're, that they're in a hard time. They know that it's difficult. And yet the process of discipleship from Paul is he speaks it. He says to them, it's through many tribulations. Expect, and yet, and they find comfort in it. When me and Brittany were doing foster care training, you know, there was a lot of it that just wasn't helpful. There was some of it that was really helpful. I remember one of the things was they talked about when a child has been so deeply hurt by, by, by their circumstances, sometimes what they need is for you to just acknowledge it, to just look at them and say, I see that you're in pain. I see that you're hurting. I see that you're angry. I see that you are not okay. And they said, for someone who's experienced such deep trauma and they're, and they're so worried about it, just hearing you acknowledge that they're in pain can relieve them. Now, I think that that is a wonderful explanation of how me and you and disciples in churches should say to one another, trials will come. For some reason, we forget that. And, and we all rush through our trials. Death strikes our household. And we say things not like, you know, this is a really hard time. We say, this is a really hard time. And hey, it's going to be OK. You'll be better soon. Right? And we forget there's just some acknowledgment sometimes that needs to be happening. You know, it's through many trials and tribulations that we get through the kingdom of God, brother. I'm here. This is what Paul's discipleship looked like. Now, this is not all that discipleship is, verse 22, but it is a good place to start. And it should lead you to tell the truth of Jesus's commands. It should lead you to obey them. It should lead you to Jesus's teaching. And discipleship certainly includes keeping Jesus's commands. But I think verse 22 here has a lot to show us how a guy like Paul had endurance. It's because he saw and believed that he was planting disciples. Okay, what else was he planting? Churches. So we preach, we plant, we plant disciples. We also plant churches. Now, there was a time in my life, I'm going to tell you personally again, as a believer and, and pastor, I'm actually sad to say, well, I thought all that you needed to do in life as a Christian is commit to personal discipleship. If you commit to the first thing I've said here, that you don't have to worry about the church or the corporate gathering. To my shame, I honestly thought about the church, you know, the church gathered times like this to be a peripheral kind of like out to the side thing in my life. You know, something that if it was healthy and it was strong, uh, then I'd be a part of it. But as soon as it wasn't, I could just dismiss it and I could just disassociate with it. And so maybe I would read a, a text like this and I would overlook verse 23. But we shouldn't do that. Okay, that's a sinful way to understand the church and discipleship. We need to see that part of Paul's example in his endurance is his commitment to plant healthy churches. Look at 23. When they had appointed elders, do you see this? When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Small verse, but huge implications. Before Paul and Barnabas have peace to return, Okay, and report to their sending church what God has done. They ensure that the church has qualified under shepherds leading the new believers that are there. It's incredible. The appointment of elders in every church, it shows the autonomy of these churches. 
I mean, we're not just Baptists because, right? We're Baptists because of the Bible. I mean, this is why we believe what we believe about what is a church? Who are the people, right? Open it up, right? There's the steeple, whatever thing. Like, we know what a church is because we read this stuff and we actually like read it as it is and we try to live by it. Now, that sounds crazy. I know not to you because you, you, we've hammered it. You know, we, got, we're, we hammer it for sure. But I want you to see uh, it's important. It reminds us as the reader, if we're in the church, that we're to submit to our church leaders as they submit to God. At least that's what it should do. That we're accountable to this. It reminds us as the reader even more if we're pastors like me and Blake. We're accountable to God for how we shepherd the flock of God here. These are the type of qualified men that Paul appointed in each church. And that's what gave him endurance. So he can pray and correspond with these men in the future. Paul's able to set up a network, and he does. Just read the rest of the New Testament, and you'll realize that Paul writes to the churches, right? And he has instructions sometimes in there for the leaders. Now, let's apply this before we move on. Let me ask you some questions. Church, who are you discipling? If no one, then pray this morning that that would change. Make yourself ready to do it. Have someone disciple you if you are unsure where to begin. Wouldn't it be easy to just commit verse 22 to memory and start praying? God, help me to strengthen those in my life. You know, God, help me to, to, to have an, an, an expression of staying with someone in tribulation, encouraging them to not give up. Maybe you could commit verse 22 to memory and pray for it. David Wells has observed, it is very easy to build churches in which seekers congregate. It is very hard to build churches in which biblical faith is maturing into genuine discipleship. We're after the latter. So church, ask yourself, who are you discipling? Yeah, it is hard. Do hard things. The Bible's as plain as that. Here's a second application. When, when you are in the church you are in, Believe it is a church worth joining. So the appointment of elders for these churches, it should remind us that each congregation that preaches the true gospel, practices the ordinance, ordinances of God, has qualified leaders, and makes disciples, that church is a heaven-stamped eternal embassy. Think about that. How you view the church will say a lot about your involvement in the spiritual disciplines that the church offers. You will not come to the church and find hope and healing week in and week out if you have a low view of what the church is. But if you rise up to the verse 23 here and you understand what Paul means when he appoints elders and what an elder is for them in every church and what a church is and what prayer and fasting are and committing yourself to the Lord, you'll see a difference. Do yourself the favor, both Saturday night and Monday morning, of praying to God in thanks for his word and his people. Build a habit around the church. That's why it's regular. So Paul preached everywhere he went, okay? He preached to himself. He preached to the lost. He preached to the saints. That was his confidence. And secondly, now we've seen Paul planted deep roots everywhere he went, disciples and churches. It gave him great endurance. And finally... Paul prays. He's a praying man. 
Pray, Paul's hope. Not a long point here, but a solid one to finish this journey. Do you see the effort of Luke's report here when he speaks of them returning to Antioch to report what God has done? Look at the report with me again. Look at verse 26. It says, from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Now what sticks out to me are two words, commended and fulfilled. Let's talk about this commended idea right here. Okay, do you remember Acts 13 just a little bit ago? Acts 13, verses 2 and 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Okay, they were commended and commissioned. We could say they were called by the Holy Spirit. To go and do what? Bear witness to Christ. And what happened when they were commended? Prayer. It took the center stage in the beginning of their journey. And gathering took the center stage in the beginning of their journey. That's how they were commissioned. Okay, second concept that I see here. This is where they were commissioned or commended to the grace of God that they had fulfilled. Now look at the text again. Verse 27. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. They have fulfilled and finished. We could say they were equipped by the Holy Spirit and they did plant churches. And what takes the center stage at the end of it? Is it something new? Prayer takes the center stage as they gather and what? The gathering themselves, they come together and they preach, take center stage at the end of their journey. Now, what do we do with this information personally this morning? Well, one application I know is this, is we gather together every week believing the same hope that these Antioch Christians believed. I want to ask you all this morning, how are you doing there? I know you're here physically. I'm asking, where's your heart? How are you in believing that you need, just like the Christians at Antioch did, a clear understanding of your calling, what it is you're supposed to do, and what it'll look like to see fulfillment? It is easy today to fall victim to believing the lie that you do not need the gathering. It's easy in our day and age to believe that you do not need the church, but you do. Let me just share some wisdom from you, both old and modern. Okay, here's old. Richard Baxter was a Puritan minister in the 1600s. He wrote this in the 1600s. Some people have an objection. They say, I can profit as much by staying at home and reading the scripture or some good book. It is the word of God which they preach, and it is that which I read at home. The books that are written by learned men are better than the sermons that are preached by our ministers. Baxter's answer, what foolish pretenses are these against the plain command of our God and of our own necessary duty? When God has appointed you your duty, will he allow you to forsake it upon your own reason as if you were wiser than God and knew what will profit you better than he does? What's Baxter getting at? 
You don't know what comes in your life. You can't control what comes in your life. Why think you can do this on your own? Do it with others. Because God said to. That's old. Here's modern. Debiti Anya Buile is a minister who wrote this in 2011. We desperately need the church for love, for maturity, and preparedness for spiritual care. It is arrogant, rebellious, self-reliant, God-indicting pride to conclude that the church is an optional extra to the Christian life. We need everything God designs for us, everything. To reject what God designs for his glory and our good is spiritual suicide. To reject the church is to take your own spiritual life into your hands. That is fire, right? And both are still right today. And that's our application. We need each other. You need the church. You need discipleship. You need the gathering. You need to be reminded. You have Thursdays where you lost hope. You need Sundays where you remember the resurrection together, where you hold out the hope of making more memories together in the resurrection yourself, where you believe at a table that he's done it and it's finished, and you hope looking forward that he's coming and you anticipate it, and you need to look to your left and your right, and you need to be interrupted by children, and you need to think together what it means to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And you need to do it and not grow weary in doing it. And you can't do any of that. You can't do any of it if you don't have what Paul had. If you don't learn the habits of preaching and planting and praying. Preach, plant, pray. Preach, plant, pray. This is Paul's habit. This is what the whole book of Acts will show. He shows up, he preaches, he plants, he prays, he moves on. My encouragement to you. We want what Antioch had, do we not? I mean, what Paul did, we want it. We better have the hope they have together. We got to stay steeped in it. May RBC be the strongest concoction if our gospel believing and our preaching and our praying and our doing, if it's like tea, it better be the strongest drink anybody we can handle because we've just been steeped in it. We're just eager. Let me show you the steeping in closing. Look at verse 28. They just kept doing it. (laughs) That's what verse 28 says. They remained no little time with the disciples. When he got back to Antioch, uh, that's just a dumb way of saying they spend a lot of time with each other. I don't know why it translates that way. It's annoying to me. But they just spent a lot of time together. Paul, you know, he spent time with people. (laughs) This is what we get to do now. What we get to do now is we come to a time of responding in song, praying a prayer of confession, and and then honestly... You know, examining ourselves and then taking this with one another. We get to be reminded of the hope we have. You see, I told you each of these things in Paul produced a character trait in him. It produced confidence, endurance, and hope. That's what it produced. And so when you now get to stand up and sing, I pray you'll preach to one another. And it may instill confidence in us that God's not done. And I pray that we will also see, as Paul not only preached, but he planted that we got some endurance that's kicking in. We're excited to continue to do this same thing over and over again every other week with each other. And may God bring guests, because the last thing is hope. We got to hold on to hope, RBC. And so I'm going to close in prayer. Our brother's going to come and sing. 
And then let's respond appropriately to God and celebrate the way the Antioch Christians celebrated. It doesn't say they took the Lord's Supper, but I promise you they did. I promise you they did. Let's pray. God, we come to you, and Lord, we ask for hope, and Lord, we ask for confidence, and we ask for endurance again. And Lord, as we think about the somberness of communion, God, Lord, I pray as our brother confesses our sins uh, corporately, God, that we would even now begin to make right uh, what, what sin has made wrong by looking to Jesus, who has been broken and bled in our place. And Father, as we think about the eternality of that table and the hope we have one day, God, may we believe that right here, just like you did in Lystra, just like you did in Antioch, just like you did in, in uh, Iconium, God, you have stamped heaven's approval on RBC. And may we see that the elders that are appointed here and the church and the disciples that are being made, God, that this is, this, you're for this and not against it. And may you give us hope in that. And Lord, may you help us to throw ourselves into doing more, outdoing one another in honor, in, in hospitality, and in, and in service. And God, we lastly pray that as we do all this, we would keep in mind that it's not just for us, that we're called to share. And Lord, help us to do that obediently. We pray all this asking in Jesus' name. Amen.